God bless you for singing. And if you would turn with me to the book of Titus, and if you're able to stand with me, I'd like to read the verses 5 through 9 this morning. We're going to be looking at in our uh, continuing study in this book, and in the first chapter we know that it's about leaders in the church, and what it means to be a powerful leader, what it means to be a godly leader, uh, what it means to be a, an upright and righteous leader. That's all I hear in the book of Titus in the first chapter. So Titus chapter 1, I want to read verses 5 down through verse 9. Paul here is writing, and he writes to his uh, young friend Titus, who he sent to this church in Crete. And here's what he says, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I want to go ahead and read the rest of this chapter, although we'll stop with our sermon at verse 9. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to learn and we want to know what it means to be a godly leader a powerful leader in your church. And Father, I'm thankful that you give us these, uh, these requirements here, these standards that we're to keep. Because without them, what basis would we use? How would we determine who should be an elder and who shouldn't? And so, uh, Father, I pray this morning, as we study through these, that you'd remind us of your truth here, help solidify it within ourselves, so that as we as a church and as Providence begins looking for a new pastor, that we have these things in our minds that we're looking for. Father, I pray you'd bless me as I teach now, that I would teach well and teach accurately. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned to you last week, and as you noticed here in the text this morning, Paul has left Titus here on this island of Crete, and he has a task here. Paul was an evangelist. Paul would travel around, and he would 
spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he would plant churches, and he would sometimes stay with them for a little while, sometimes he would leave uh, pretty rapidly, but he would make his circles back around, and he would check on them to see what their health was like. And in this particular church, he decided to send Titus there in order to put in order the things that remained. In other words, when Paul left, there were some things left open. There were some things that weren't in place yet. Primarily, in chapter 1, we're learning that it's about establishing leadership. And so Titus is there, and he's supposed to be putting men in place that will lead this church. And so the question that we're asking, and the question that Titus is asking, and he's getting information on from Paul, is, what kind of leader should I put in place? What makes a good leader in a church? Now, had Paul been around today you and I might have advised him to just go to Amazon.com and see what he could find on leadership, right? Uh, I decided to try that this week. I went to Amazon and went to the book section, and I just typed in the word leadership to see what was out there. Well, Amazon returned 110,426 results. Over 100,000 books that I could purchase to find out what makes a good leader. That's a lot of opinions. That's a lot of different angles. I'm thankful that Paul didn't have to do that. I'm thankful that Paul had the inspiration of the Spirit and he just wrote. And he said, here's what God says makes an elder. Here are the qualifications for an elder. And I'm also thankful that I don't have to go to 110,000 books to find what makes a good elder, I can go to the book, the Bible, and I can look at Paul's letter. It's been preserved for us now for 2,000 years, and I can find the requirements right here. They're repeated in 1 Timothy 3, but at least in Titus 1, I can look at it. So I titled this sermon this morning, Leadership by the Book. And I'm talking about this book, the Bible. Leadership by the Book. All right? One of the great privileges that I've had uh, being a pastor here at Providence, I've been surrounded ever since I've been here, I've been surrounded by a group of elders who love you and they love me. These elders have often celebrated with me as I've witnessed the grace of God in your lives and I'll come back and I'll say, hey, guess what's happening? And they'll celebrate with me. Uh, These elders have encouraged me uh, when I have gone through times of discouragement, and every pastor does. Um, They've encouraged me. They've they've lifted me up in prayer. Uh, These elders have corrected me when I needed to be corrected. Uh, But you know how I know that they love you? This is how I know. Because never once have they ever stood in the way of the preaching of God's word. Never once have they come to me and said, you need to avoid that passage. We don't want you to preach that here. You need to stay away from this one. It's too controversial. Never once have they done that. Why? Because they love you. And because they love you, they want you to be taught. And they want you to be taught from God's word. Do you know how you will know when your pastor no longer loves you? It's when he starts telling stories and he never opens his Bible for you. That's when you know he doesn't love you anymore. That's when you know that he doesn't care. When he doesn't encourage you to look at the words that he's preaching and saying, Test me. 
Go and search for it yourself and make sure what I'm telling you is true. If he's not doing that, there's a good chance that he doesn't love you anymore. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. I remember one time I was in a, a pastor's meeting. It wasn't here locally, um, but I was in a pastor's meeting, and the moderator of the meeting asked us to go around the room and, and tell a little bit about what was happening in our churches. It was kind of a neat thing, and so they were going around, and the individual to my immediate left, when I got to this person, uh, this person said, you know, we decided to try something new in our churches, in our church, um, we're having sermons. Now you can imagine me, I'm sitting there, and my brain is exploding. Out the back, they're doing, what? I'm thinking, what have you been doing up to now? Because if you're just now doing sermons, what was it like? This person went on to explain, you know, we would come together and have breakfast, and we just kind of talk about what God is doing, and and you know, that's all fine. You can talk about what is God is doing. There, there's nothing sinful in telling stories per se. But at some point, I would think someone should ask, where's the leader? Where's the one who loves you by opening God's word and teaching you? Where has that person been for all this time that you're just now having sermons? So I'm very thankful for the time that I've been here and for the elders that have surrounded me because they have loved you by teaching you and allowing you to be taught and allowing you to dig into the word. And if we want that kind of activity to continue at Providence, long after Sean is gone, long after the next pastor is gone, however long he stays, however long it is, any person that we want, if we want that to continue in our churches, the teaching of God's word, then we must evaluate that candidate by these criteria that Paul has set up for us in Titus chapter 1. We have to say, does the person meet these qualifications? Okay? That's why this is so critical. So let's take a look at what he says and and why it's so important. Uh, Verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, uh, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint who? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, just a couple quick points here. Um, Number one, I believe that the Bible teaches that the idea of an elder, a pastor, a bishop, an overseer, a shepherd teacher, you see all these different terms in the New Testament— I'm firmly convinced that all of those terms refer to the same person. The title for the role that I occupy is elder. Now, I understand that, that we call my position pastor, and that fits our contemporary society. But biblically, uh, my role is an elder, along with Eric, who is our youth pastor. He's also an elder. And then we have four other lay elders. So we have six elders that form the leadership of this church. 
if you aren't convinced of that, and if you want to go back and listen, I went through that back in the summer of 2012, I think. You can go back online and listen to that sermon that we talked about, why that is. But I do think that those are all the same. So what Paul is telling Titus here is, I want you to put pastors in place. I want you to put elders in place. I want you to put leaders in place. What is their title? It's elder. What is their role? They're overseers. They're to oversee the spiritual health of this local congregation. And notice, too, what Paul tells Titus here. He says, I want you to appoint elders, plural, more than one. Paul never once envisioned a church that had a CEO-type model for leadership, where you have one guy at the top who's calling all the shots, and you maybe have a board of yes-men around him, or maybe they're supposed to be these advisors. That's never what Paul had in mind. Paul had in mind this equality among a plurality of qualified men. Uh, That was Paul's idea, and I think it makes sense. It's, It's a good thing to have a plurality of elders. Why? Well, here's the reality. In a church setting like we have, And when we have a senior pastor or a lead pastor, that individual does the bulk of the teaching. And because he does the bulk of the teaching, that's what he's paid to do, often his influence in leadership circles can be greater than others. And so it's very tempting for a senior pastor to become arrogant and to become prideful. After all, he's the senior pastor. And so it's very easy for senior pastors who share that multitude of influence, I guess, on people, to struggle with arrogance and to struggle with pride, to think somehow this church can't go on without me. And so so God in his graciousness says, you know what? That's not the kind of model I want. I want a plurality of elders so that they can hold each other accountable. So when one guy gets a big head and he starts venturing off into pride and arrogance, the other guys who are equal in their authority with him can correct him and can rein him back in. I remember once... Uh, when I said something from the pulpit, it's been, a, it's been several years ago. I'm not going to remind you what it was, but I said something from the pulpit uh, that didn't settle well with the other elders. And it was that next Wednesday night uh, that they confronted me about it. And they said, Sean, uh, we understand what you're saying. We understand what you're preaching. And you might believe that, but don't make it out to appear as though we're all on board with you on that one. We think you need to explain that a little bit more. And so, uh, when they told me that, the first thought that went through my mind was, why don't you just shove it? Now, why would I think that? Because I'm the pastor, and I'll say what I want to say. But you know, the more I thought about that, the more grateful I was that they confronted me. And they called me to the carpet. Why? Because that told me that they love you. And they weren't going to stand by and just let me say whatever I wanted with no accountability. And so the next Sunday I came back and I explained that a little bit further. 
clarified what I was trying to say. You should be thankful that you have leadership like that. You should be thankful that you have elders who are willing to confront the pastor when something's off just a little bit. So what kind of men qualify to do this? That's a heavy task. That's a big task. What kind of men qualify to do and play that kind of role? Well, look at verse 6, because Paul starts to outline these a little bit. Paul says this in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, so there's at least three things there. Number one, he has to be above reproach. This doesn't mean that he's faultless. This doesn't mean that he's flawless. This simply means that he's trying to follow after Jesus Christ because by the, I mean, the reality is Jesus Christ was the only flawless one. So if we're looking for a man who's perfect, the only person we're going to find is Jesus Christ. So we're not looking for a man who's perfect, but we're looking for a man who's living a life that's above legitimate accusation. We're looking for a man who lives above public scandal. A man who lives a life of integrity. A man whose life is worthy of imitation. And why is that so important? Well, It's important because of this. Whatever that man is who's teaching... It's that kind of man that other people are going to become. Jesus said this in Luke 6. He says this, Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So we want a man who lives his life above reproach because we want men and women in the church to live their lives above reproach. And they're going to look and act like their teacher. We don't want some slick willy out there doing all these things back in the background and bringing shame and reproach on the name of Christ, on the pastorate, and on our church. So we want a man who's living above reproach. Now Paul takes that and he says he, he needs to be above reproach, but in particular in two areas, if you want to find out if he's above reproach, look at his family and look at his marriage. Because those two things are telltale signs of how he's going to live his life. First of all, Paul says he needs to be the husband of one wife. There's been a lot of controversy around that phrase. What does that mean, the husband of one wife or a one wife husband? What, What does that mean? And I think if you read that in a very wooden fashion you're going to come away with probably some wrong conclusions. Because if you read it very wooden, the husband of one wife, and you follow that out logically, then a single person could never be an elder. Because a single person is not the husband of one wife. Paul was single. Was he disqualified from being an elder? I don't think so. I think if you read it that wooden, you're going to miss it. You can go the other direction, and you can say... Well, if he has to be the husband of one wife, then that would automatically disqualify widowers because their wives have died. So they're not the husband of one wife. So would you say that a widower could not be an elder? I think that's probably going a little beyond what Paul had in mind. I think that's too wooden. So is it meant to hold at bay uh, those men who are divorced and remarried? 
Perhaps. And I think that's a place of discernment and that's a, a place of wisdom. But I think what Paul is really getting at here, if you, if you step back from it just a, a, just a bit, I think what he's saying is this. This guy that you are putting into office, this leader, he needs to be literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. The woman that he's with, he needs to be committed to her. He can't be out running around with every other woman in the church. That's going to be a problem. That's going to, be, uh, that's going to bring shame. He needs to be faithful. So look at his marriage. If he's married, look at his marriage. Is he a one-woman man? How does he treat his wife? Is he faithful to her? Does he love her? Does he serve her? I think that's what Paul's trying to get to. And secondly, he says, as long as we're looking at his, his family life, his marriage life, look at his kids. What kind of kids does he have? Because his kids should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Well, what is that and why is that important? Well, Paul tells us why it's important in 1 Timothy, and he says it there like this. He says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage to care for God's church? In other words, if you're looking at this man and his kids are running around like little heathens, wreaking havoc everywhere they go, and he's not trying to do anything about it, then what do you think he's going to do with the little heathens that run around in your church? Because they're there. Is he just going to let them run wild and the church is just going to be a place of chaos? Watch his children and watch how he manages his children. He won't be perfect. His children are sinners just like your children are sinners. But what's he doing about it? How is he training them? How is he teaching them? How is he guiding their hearts? Because however he's doing that with his children is exactly how he's going to do it with the church. And if there's no instruction there, If there's no caring for his children, then there's going to be no caring for the church either. And it's going to be a madhouse. And what about this idea that each of his children must be believers? That's what Titus says. They must be believers. That means they have to be Christians. If if one of his children is not a Christian, is he disqualified from ministry? I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I think that qualification uh, would mean then that every child has to grow up and be in the faith. And as Christians, as Christian parents, we aren't in in charge of our child's salvation. Yes, we teach them. Yes, we guide them. Yes, we take them to church. But ultimately, I can't change my child's heart. And I might have four children and three of them grow up and love the Lord and serve him with all their heart, and one be rebellious and never give his heart to Jesus Christ, I can't control that. I can't do anything about that. The question that Paul's asking here is, how are they responding to the teaching of their father? Are they respectful? Do they honor their dad? In this area of marriage and family, you can tell a lot about a man, can't you? If he mistreats his wife, if he mistreats his children, he's going to mistreat the church. So let's look at the rest of the qualifications, starting in verse 7. Verses 7 and 8, by the way, uh, Paul lists five must-nots and then six musts. So five things that this guy must not do, must not be, 
and six things that he must be. So let's look at the must-nots first in verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. We talked about that. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Okay, that's quite a list. So number one, uh, it says that he must not be arrogant. As I mentioned to you last week, Paul was the furthest thing from arrogant that you could possibly find. Paul imitated Jesus Christ and he was humble. Remember, we said that Paul saw himself as a slave of God. He had a humble posture. That's the qualification of an elder. He must not be arrogant. If you're ever around an arrogant leader, if you're ever around an arrogant pastor in particular you will find that he tends to surround himself with yes men. People who will just sort of rubber stamp anything that he wants to do. Or at least they're unwilling to point out places where he needs to change. So one of the most helpful things for me uh, to help me battle in this temptation for arrogance is early on, uh, whenever uh, I came to Providence, we put into place what was called a sermon and service Review or a sermon and service critique. And here's, here's what we do. It goes something like this at Providence. Um, each Wednesday night when we have our elders meeting, somewhere on the agenda is listed January 19th sermon service review in which any of the elders can talk about anything that happened in that service, be it the call to worship, the offering, the music, and specifically the sermon. And they are allowed to critique that and to offer suggestions. Now, most of the time, uh, they are very generous. It's very kind. It's very encouraging. But on occasion, they've had to say those hard things that are hard for a pastor to hear. We don't think that perhaps you should have said that. Or when you said that, do you know that it sounded like this? Or did you mean that when you said this? Or... I think you just got that part wrong. Okay? Those are hard things for a pastor to hear. But in the end, what does it do? It helps him to battle against arrogance. It helps him to be a humble man. That these people are willing to critique and to offer suggestions to make things better. So an elder, a pastor, must not be arrogant. That's one way that we've tried here to help with that. Secondly... He can't be quick-tempered. He can't be quick-tempered. That's the person who loses his cool really, really fast. You know that kind of person. It's the person that you always have to walk on eggshells around. And when you're around that person and somebody says something, you think, oh no, it's going to all explode now. That's a quick-tempered person. That's not the kind of person you want as a leader. Why? Because things are going to be exploding all the time. Because he's going to hear things that he doesn't like. How's he going to handle that? And by the way, if a quick-tempered man is leading the church, guess how his people will become? Quick-tempered, right? They're going to follow suit. In Proverbs chapter 22, it says, if you hang around an angry person, you'll learn his ways. You'll be like him. So if you have a quick-tempered pastor, you're going to have a quick-tempered church. Everyone's going to be upset, angry. Number three, an elder must not be a drunkard. 
one who's addicted to alcohol, one who's filled by the spirits of the bottle instead of filled by the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Fourth, a leader in the church must not be violent. And if you look at the word violent, if you go back and look that word up, it literally means to strike. It's the type of person who's just primed and ready to punch you in the face if you say something he doesn't like. Now, can you imagine having a pastor like that? Hey, pastor, I didn't really appreciate your sermon. You had a really bad sermon this week. (laughs) Just smash you right in the face, right? You can't have a pastor like that. Now, at this point, I want you to just stop and think about this. At this point in the qualifications, you need to be thinking about what in the world kind of people were living in Crete that Paul has to specifically state that they can't be angry drunks ready to punch people in the face? You know, I think after 2,000 years, you and I kind of take these things for granted. We just assume that the pastor is a kind and gracious and listening person, right? And we forget sometimes that elders can have a temper and they can be addicted to things. They can be arrogant. So Paul says, this isn't just for the Cretans. This is for everybody. The last must not is that he dare not be greedy for gain. This is a a person who uses his position of authority to build excessive gain for himself. And you see this all around our country today where pastors will, will use their celebrity status to bring in the big bucks. And most oftentimes where you see this is when pastors will offer to provide some supernatural work in exchange for your faith offering. And I'll just encourage you this. I'll just warn you of this. One of the characteristics of a false teacher is that he exploits people for gain. In 2 Peter chapter six or chapter 2, it says this, and in their greed, he's talking about false teachers, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Friends, Beware of the person who offers you promises in exchange for your money. That person is likely greedy for gain, and he's disqualified from being a leader in the church because of it. So those are the must-nots. What are the musts in verse 8? He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay? Those are the must. Number one, he must be hospitable. That means he's a lover of strangers. He is a warm and inviting person. He shows generosity toward guests and toward visitors. 1 Peter 4 adds to this. And by the way, 1 Peter 4 is talking to everybody and not just pastors. But Peter says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
It's not just enough to show hospitality. It's to show hospitality without grumbling. So it means this. You don't invite people to your house for Sunday lunch and then you grumble about it all the way home. (sighs) I didn't think they'd say yes and they did. Okay. You show hospitality without grumbling. By the way, if that applies to everybody... I would point out to you that in your bulletin for the last several weeks, uh, we've been looking for rooms to host pastors and their wives in February. What a perfect place to put this into practice. Practice hospitality without grumbling. Secondly, he must be a lover of good. That's the opposite of a lover of bad. A lover of good is someone who looks for the virtuous things in life to praise. He participates in good things, not in evil things. Thirdly, he must be self-controlled. He's, he's reasonable. He's not fluctuating wildly between emotions. One day he's all pumped up and he's excited, and the next day he's down in the pits. And you've got to gauge when you're going to talk to the guy based on what kind of a mood he's in. Don't talk to pastor today. Not a good day. Yeah, go. He's having a great day, man. Somebody gave him a gift card. Go talk to him. He's a wonder. He'll do whatever. Okay? No. He needs to be a self-controlled kind of guy. Even temperament kind of guy. Level-headed. Next, he must be upright and he must be holy. Upright is how he interacts with people on a horizontal level. He's honest with them. He's upright. And to be holy is how he interacts vertically. He loves God. He's a holy man. He wants to have a relationship with God. And the last must that Paul lists there is this. He must be disciplined. And this one really struck me, honestly, as I was reading this. This this one stood out to me a little bit. This idea of discipline here, when Paul talks about discipline, he's talking about discipline in how he treats and uses his body. How he treats and uses his body. It oftentimes makes me wonder how many pastors would be disqualified from the ministry if one took their weight into consideration. I know of a friend of mine who on a pastoral application was asked for his weight. Why? Because they wanted to see if he was disciplined. Could he control his mouth? Right? Makes you wonder. And the idea, of course, is this. If he can't take care of his own body, how's he going to take care of the body of Christ? That's the idea. He must be disciplined. Paul concludes this list of qualifications with perhaps the most important one Verse 9, he ends it with this, and the ending with this is an emphasis in the way Paul's writing. Verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll find out as we move along through this book that one of the problems in the Cretan church was that they had Judaizers and they had man-made philosophers that were bringing false teaching into the church. 
They were adding conditions to salvation in order to be truly saved. They were, they were bringing some Jewish traditions, circumcision. They were bringing some man-made traditions. Mysticism begins to appear in this church. And it never really ceases to amaze me that when people take their eyes off of Scripture and the truth of the simplicity of the gospel, they'll begin adding rules. They'll begin adding other requirements. And Paul says, no, no, no. This man who comes into your congregation to be your leader, to be your elder, he must hold firm to sound doctrine. He must not be adding to it. The trustworthy word is so simple that people feel the need to somehow add to it. But the trustworthy word is simple. You're a sinner. You have sinned. You are guilty before God, and thus you are his enemy. And yet, God in his mercy and in his grace, he chose to love you. Why? Why in the world would he love you? I don't know. Other than he chose to set his affection on you. And he chose to love you. And his gift to you was his son, Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm going to send my son into this earth. He's going to walk perfectly. He's going to go to the cross and die. And he's going to raise again. And the greatest exchange that ever took place, took place at the cross for you and I. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took all of your sin. And in its place, he gave you all of his righteousness. It's this swap that takes place. This miraculous, wonderful swap. And now, you're clothed, if you're a believer, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God sees you, he sees his son. And when God sees his son, he is pleased with his son. In fact, he said this about his son. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. That's how he sees you. If you've repented of your sins and if you've by faith believed in Jesus Christ. It's a simple message. And Paul says to Titus, you're, you're going to have guys in your church. In fact, I already know about them. They're going to start adding to that. Believing in Jesus isn't enough. You need to do this and then you need to do this and then you need to do that. Listen, friend. Jesus paid all of the penance that was ever due for your sin. You owe no more. He paid it all. Now you trust in that and you believe that by faith. That's the simple message. And yet people want to make that so complicated. So Paul says, not only must he be grounded, not only must he be solid in good doctrine, but he also must be able to refute those who contradict it. In other words, he must be able to go to those who contradict it and say, friend, I love you, but that's wrong. Don't add to the gospel. You know what's difficult for elders and pastors today? One of the things that's difficult today is that sermons and ministries are so widely available on the internet today and on television and on radio. You can hear virtually any kind of pastor you want to hear. 
And so one thing that's difficult for elders and pastors today is to stay on top of those different types of ministries because it, it happens frequently. Someone will come to me and say, hey, have you heard of so-and-so? Sometimes I have, sometimes I haven't. Hey, have you seen this book? It's written by so-and-so. Sometimes I've seen it, sometimes I haven't. But one of the things that Paul says I need to be able to do as an elder is to be able to evaluate that ministry, holding to sound doctrine and evaluating that ministry to say, these folks are solid or these folks maybe aren't quite as healthy um, or these folks are just flat heretical. Stay away from them. That's a challenge today. That's difficult. I don't always get that right. Your other elders might. It's challenging. But these are the qualifications of an elder. These are the qualifications of a pastor. These are the things that we're going to look for as we look for a new pastor at Providence. And that's quite a list, isn't it? You go down through that list, you think to yourself, would I qualify for that? There's a lot of stuff there. And yet when you step back from it just a little bit, it makes complete sense. God isn't looking for men who are perfect. God is looking for men who will shepherd the flock and take their cue off the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking for. So I want to pray, and I want to ask God to provide providence with this kind of a man, a Titus 1 kind of a man. All right? Let's pray. God, I thank you that these words have been preserved for us for all of these millennia. I thank you that we don't have to go to 110,000 Amazon books to find descriptions of leadership, however helpful they might be. But we can go to the book, your book, the scriptures, and we can find there the qualifications that you've laid out for the leaders that you want in your church. Not just for ones coming in, but for ones that are also already here. And Father, I pray as we look through this list and as we begin to evaluate candidates that come to this church, I pray that we would be so dedicated to following what you have here that it wouldn't be even be a question that if a man comes and he's arrogant or he's drunk or he hits his wife, God, that immediately we'd look to these texts and evaluate him based on that. Father, you know what providence needs. You know what providence wants. Father, I pray that you would provide just that man. We know that he won't be perfect We can't look for perfections or none of us would be qualified. There would be no leadership from a human perspective. But I pray that you would bring a man that would love this church by teaching this church, that would love this church by shepherding this church, that would love this church by being an example to them of how to love his wife and how to love his children, that you would bring a man who loves this church by standing on sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict it. God, you know who that man is going to be. We don't, but we trust you. And I pray until that day that we would be in much prayer. And we'd also, God, remember the leaders that you already have here. The other elders who 
remain in place here. That they would look at their lives compared to this list and that they would find that they're changing and growing in according to this list and that they would continue loving this church by providing a senior pastor that would teach well. God, in all these things, we believe you, we trust you, and we rest in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.